Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm sure most of you in this room <clears throat> know the story of um, Helen Keller. Helen Keller was a lady that lived about 100 years ago. <clears throat> she was born without any eyesight. She was blind. And she was deaf. She couldn't hear a thing. Now, I don't know if you know, you can, I can't imagine that. Living in a, a kind of a closed-off world. <coughs> um, she was just in her own little world as the world was very, very small. But Helen Keller tells the dramatic moment <coughs> when Ann Sullivan, that was the young woman that came to work with her, Ann Sullivan first broke through her dark, silent world with the illumination of language. Quote, this is Helen Keller quoting, We walked down the path to the well house, <clears throat> attracted by the fragrance of the honeysuckle with which it was covered. Someone was drawing water, and my teacher placed my hand under the spout. As the cool stream gushed over one hand, she spelled into the other the word water, first slowly, then rapidly. I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motion of her fingers. Suddenly I felt a misty consciousness as of something forgotten, a thrill of returning thought of somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that W-A-T-E-R meant that wonderful cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word <clears throat> awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, set it free. The moment Helen Keller, and that's end of quote, the moment Helen Keller describes is that moment her world of darkness was shattered with the light of language. Although she was the same person physically, her life was transformed. She now had a way she could see and understand. Well, I'm going to suggest that in a somewhat similar way, God has a plan to overcome the human soul, the darkness in the human soul, and transform it. And this morning I want to talk about when God turned up the light. Now, I'm sure most of you in your houses have got probably a light somewhere with a dimmer switch on it. And that's what I want to mention this morning about God turning up the light, God's unfolding revelation. We talk about, uh, in theology, progressive revelation, that through human history, um, God, as it were, turned up the light of the knowledge of himself, his self-revelation. Now, light is a, is a metaphor, isn't it? It's a metaphor of truth. We talk about light, not just the light uh, up there and all that. But we talk about light as truth or light as understanding. Uh, somebody would say, I want, let me enlighten you. Or uh, you would say, I think I can shed light on that. What does that mean? It means that you can open up somebody's understanding. You can present them with more or fuller truth, right? That's, that's a metaphor of light. And throughout human history, God, as it were, turned up the light of the knowledge of himself. Now, first of all, the light was there. Revelation was there in the creation, what's called natural revelation, where just the fact that things are pointed to the fact that there had to be a creator. The universe, the order, the majesty, the beauty, all that uh, screamed, as it were, the fact that there was a creator, a God. But beyond that is what's called special revelation. And God chose a certain people, we know the Jews, 
And in the Jews, he was going to particularize his revelation. What do I mean by that? Well, it began with a man by the name of Abraham. Actually, it began before Abraham with Job. But uh, God came to Abraham and talked to Abraham, revealed himself to Abraham, let Abraham know more about him than Abraham or anybody else had known before. And then later on, a thousand years later, God spoke through Moses and gave the people the law. And there was more revelation, more knowledge. And then after Moses, there came David, King David, who was a king. He was not only a king, he was a prophet. And all of the Hebrew prophets, and with all of these things, there was more pronouncements, more revelation, more knowledge, more light. God kept turning up the light. And people began understanding more and more of him. And part of the reason he chose these people was because the Jews were to be a light to other nations that didn't know about God. In fact, in the book of Isaiah 49, God said, I will make you, you Jewish people, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so you see this progression of knowledge, of revelation, starting with Abraham, and from Abraham to Moses, and from Moses to David, and the Hebrew prophets, and the lights being turned up, and then all of a sudden, 400 years of silence with the prophet Malachi. After Malachi, the last of the Hebrew prophets, well, the last at that time of the Hebrew prophets spoke 400 years of nothing. We call that the intertestamental period. No revelation. Now, a lot of things happened in those 400 years. You and I read through the Bible, and we go through the Old Testament, and we keep reading, and we finally come to the end of Malachi. We turn the page. Oops, there's Matthew. We just keep right on going. We don't sense that 400 years of silence. But there was 400 years, people, and all of a sudden we turn the page and we read about Sadducees, Pharisees, synagogue, things that they weren't there just a page or two before. And with that ending of the 400 years, God turned the light up all the way. And the last of the basically Old Testament prophets was John the Baptist, who heralded the final absolute light of Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. Pastor John began last week reading the first, uh, going through the first five verses, and I'm going to be looking at uh, verses 6 through 13. So uh, if you have your Bible or a Bible, uh, let's stand together. If you forgot to bring your Bible this morning, God have mercy on your poor sin sick soul. I'm going to back up to verse 1 and continue on down to verse 13. John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. Let's pray. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you might enlighten us this morning. Open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your law, in your truth, in your word. We praise you, Heavenly Father, this morning because you are the source that, that is the source of all truth, the wellspring of knowledge and wisdom and life. Even though you dwell in unapproachable light, you have reached down into a world of darkness through your Son, Jesus Christ, to bring us truth and life. As the hymnist says, immortal, invisible God, only wise, in light, inaccessible, light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, O ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great and wonderful name we praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can all be seated. preach as long as my voice doesn't give out. Jesus is the ultimate light. He's the final light. He's the true light, according to what John says here. He was the fullness of revelation. When Jesus came into this earth, he was, as we say, the incarnation. He was in the world. He came into the world. Incarnation comes from a couple Latin words, incarnate, in flesh. God in flesh came to this world. Eternity stepped into time. 2,000 years ago. Isaiah's got an interesting way of putting it. Isaiah, a messianic prophet, prophesied about the coming of Jesus Christ uh, a number of times. But in Isaiah chapter 9, listen to this. This was a prophecy about the coming Messiah. It says, but there, this is Isaiah 9.1, there will be no gloom for for her who was in anguish. In the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem and Galilee. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined or dawned. 2,000 years ago, It's hard for us to conceive, but 2,000 years ago, infinite being was compressed into a human body. And the spiritual and moral darkness that that shrouded our planet was pierced with an inextinguishable light, and that light was the person of Jesus Christ. Now, John says that this illumination was for all men. If you look again at uh, John... Verse 7, he says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. <clears throat> all. Look down at verse um, 9. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. What does that mean? That means that Jesus Christ wasn't just to be a light for certain people. You know, just for the Jews. But Jesus Christ was to be light revelation for all manners of human beings without uh, distinction. Men, women, Asians, Caucasians, people that walk in lands of Buddhism and confusion or Confucianism. Jesus was to be a light for all men. And sometimes that makes it hard for us Christians, doesn't it? Because the message we say speaks about an exclusive Savior that Jesus Christ was for all men. 
He's just not our personal God. He's just not an American God. The light was to be given for all people. Jesus was very exclusive. Throughout history, people have been concerned about truth, haven't they? And light and truth are kind of metaphors for one another. You know, the Hindu Vedas, the Hindu scriptures said the truth is one, but the sages speak of it in many different ways. The Buddha said, my teachings point the way to the attainment of the truth. Mohammed says, truth has been revealed to me. Jesus said, I am the truth. You see the distinction there? With all these other great religious leaders, truth was something they either had or they didn't have. It was something they could talk about or something. It was, it was not themselves. It was, it, was, it was something. Jesus said, I am truth, embodied in flesh, so to speak. And he gave irrefutable proof that he was the true light because of his miracles and his resurrection. Jesus Christ was unique. He said things that no other human being ever said. Outlandish things. He said that he was able to forgive sin. He said that he and the Father were one. He said that he existed before Abraham. He said things that wouldn't be sense, made sense to anybody else, but in Jesus Christ we see the truth. He was absolutely unique. He was the true light. But then we ask ourselves, how have men and women responded to the light? And that's really what I want to look at this morning. There are several ways that men and women have responded to God's revelation, and in specific, Jesus Christ. Now, these are not going to be taken in order, okay? But I want us to look back at the text here. I want us to uh, see three different ways that people respond to the light. <clears throat> First of all, look at verse 10 and 11. He, Jesus, the Word, although He's not named yet, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. One way people respond to the light is they reject it. They refuse it. They don't want it. And verse 10 says that he was in the world, but the world didn't know him. The world rejected Jesus Christ. Now the word world here is the word cosmos. That can mean planet Earth. That can mean the universe. Or it can also be the world of human beings, of mankind. And if you look here at verse 3, where it says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Uh, it's talking about the cosmos, the creation. But when you look down at verse 10, he was in the world. What's that? The physical world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not follow him. Now he's talking about the world of men. The world of men rejected Jesus Christ. And then in verse 11, it says he was rejected by his own people. Now think about that. Does the world today reject Jesus Christ? Yes, the world today largely rejects Jesus Christ. And also he was rejected by his very own people, the Jews. The Jews, remember, were given the law. They were given Moses. They were given the prophets. They were given all kinds of revelation, but they failed to follow it. They failed to obey them. The law pointed toward Jesus Christ. But they failed to follow the law. Jeremiah the prophet said, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them, the Jews, day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ears, but stiffened their neck. So they refused to listen. And then Jesus comes along 
And the Jews reject Jesus. Jesus was born a Jew. And his own people rejected him. You know, when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, they said in, uh, I think it was John chapter 12, they said, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, Greek, Christos, means Messiah, Messiah. They said, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us. And Jesus said, I told you, but you don't believe They rejected him. Why did they reject him? Because they weren't looking for a suffering Messiah, a healer. They were looking for a political deliverer from Rome. Jesus wasn't what they wanted in a Messiah. And so they rejected him. And in John chapter, um, I think it's chapter 25 here. Uh, Excuse me, John chapter 12. Listen to this. It says, when Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them, Jewish people. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And this was the word Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom, is the Lord, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. I don't know if you get the progression there. First of all, they refused willfully to listen to him. And then secondly, it says, Now they could not. God hardened their hearts. They refused to listen once, so God hardens their heart. And then they were unable to hear. And by the way, folks, that hardening persists to this day. They still reject Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And so also do people reject Jesus Christ today. Now what I mean by that is they know that Jesus is a wonderful person. But if you go into any kind of a group of people, you know, just a mix of people, not church people, and you talk about things, if you bring up, the, if the word God comes up, it doesn't bother people. Because people are thinking, well, that's your God, and there's other kinds of God, and who is God after all, and all that. But as soon as you mention the word Jesus, whoops, now you're starting to step on toes, aren't you? Now you're becoming exclusive. People don't have any problem with God. People have a problem with Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ sheds light, right? Now, and that's why I want to get to this next point. Why do people reject Him? Two reasons. Two reasons people reject the light of revelation of Jesus Christ. First of all, in John chapter 3, people reject the light of Jesus Christ because of their evil. This is Jesus speaking in John 3, 19. He said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest the works, his works should be exposed. People reject the light because their deeds are evil. When I was a kid, I used to like to go out in the country. My brother and I would go out in the country. Sometimes we'd take a coffee can or something, and we'd try to find things like an oh, a, a old board out in the woods somewhere, or a log, or something you know, laying there that was small enough. Because I always wanted to turn it over and see what was under it. Can you guys relate to this? You girls can't relate to this, but you guys can relate to this. 
I wanted to find out what's, because there were all manners of things sometimes that were under those boards or under those logs. Could have been a snake, mouse, snakes, bugs. But the interesting thing was when you turn it over and expose the light, what happened to these things? Boom! They disappear as fast as they could. Worm goes down the hole, mouse, snakes, they're gone. They didn't like being exposed to the light. Now that's kind of a metaphor to me of what Jesus does. Jesus gets so close and he shines the light on our heart. And we don't like that light. Turn off the light. Right? So one reason people reject the light, they love darkness because their deeds are evil. The other reason is over in um, 2 Corinthians here, chapter 4, where Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan blinds their eyes. Two reasons people reject the light. One, they don't want the light. Secondly, you've got a supernatural entity that is actually smothering and blinding the light any and every chance that he can get. So, responding to the light, the light can be rejected. Secondly, and this is in uh, contrast to that, light can be received. Look again here at John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. But it says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But then verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Light can also be received. It can be rejected, but it can be received. Now, I want you to see the interesting um, combination here of, of human responsibility and divine sovereignty in this. You know, you and I have a responsibility in the process of being adopted into the family of God. We have this responsibility. Look what it says in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, that's something we do, we can't do, receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We have a responsibility in our adoption process of believing and receiving. Now, don't pat yourself on the back yet. I'm going to get into the other side of that. This is not just an intellectual nod in the direction of Jesus. That's not what receiving Jesus is all about. Receiving Jesus means receiving Him for who He is. Lord, oh, I can receive Jesus as a great moral teacher. I can receive Jesus as a great religious figure. I can receive Jesus as some kind of a, you know, one of the many uh, great men of history that have stepped into time and all that. No, no, no. Receiving Jesus means receiving Him for who He is. Lord and Savior, God. Jesus said in John chapter 8, if, if you do not believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Receiving Him means receiving Him as your Lord in submission to Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, who believed in His name, what's that all about? Again, under his authority, in his name. We say, or we hear say, stop in the name of the law. What are we doing there? We are holding up a higher authority than ourselves. The name of the law. 
It's not just a name. It's not just Jesus. But we receive Him. We receive and believe in His name under the authority of Jesus Christ. And folks, when you receive something, that's a choice that you make, right? A gift is offered. But a gift can be rejected. Or a gift can be received, right? You have to receive a gift in order to enjoy the benefits of that gift. F.F. F. Bruce was a New Testament scholar. He says, to receive Him who is the Word of God is to place one's faith in Him, to yield one's allegiance to Him, and thus, in the most practical manner, to acknowledge His claims. His claims upon you. His claims upon me. But to all who received Him and who believed in His name, He gave the right. The word right there is a Greek word, exousia. It means authority. It's the word that's used for power. Power in the sense <coughs> of the position that you have. And when we receive and believe in His name, we are given the right, the authority to become children of God. But then there's God's responsibility too. It's not just us. <coughs> Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. <clears throat> what does that mean? It means that spiritual birth is God's responsibility. You and I can't be saved by our own act of the will. Excuse me. Look at some of these ways how you and I cannot be made right with God. We cannot become children of God, it says, born not of blood. What does that mean? Our spiritual birth, our being made with, right with our Heavenly Father, is not born because of our blood. It's not be, you cannot be saved, you cannot be made right with God because mom and dad are. You can't live on your parents' spiritual coattails. You can't be made a child of God because you're a certain race. <clears throat> or a group of people. You know, well, it's in my bloodlines, so what? You can't be saved because you are born of some uh, or by genetics. And this is what Jesus said. You're a child of Abraham? John the Baptist said, well, God can raise up rocks to be children of Abraham. Just being a child of Abraham isn't going to make you right with God. <coughs> Secondly, born not of the will of flesh. In other words, born from human desire. You can't um, become a child of God by willing yourself to, be, to live a good life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decide to live a good Christian life. And I'm going to be a good person. That's not going to get you into heaven. You know, as if the Trinity's got a vacancy somehow and you think you can fill it. And then third, born not of the will of man. <clears throat> you can't be made a child of God because of the desire or influence or effort of other people. You can't become a child at the point of a sword. The Roman Catholic Church tried that centuries ago. Mass conversions. 
Islam does that today. But you can't become a child of God because of the will of another person, whether it be pastor, priest, uh, some kind of ceremony. Baptism doesn't save you. You know, I'm going to baptize my baby and then they'll be okay spiritually. No. Spiritual birth comes as an act of God upon our dead spirit. Let me read to you from chapter 2 of uh, Ephesians. Where Paul says you, and he's speaking to Christians now. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God made us alive. God turned on the light. God is the one who turns on the light. Receiving and believing in Jesus Christ is impossible without God's supernatural intervention. You know, this describes so well. One of my favorite um, hymns is, And Can It Be? Listen to the words in one of these verses. It so well describes what I'm talking about. It says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, came into that dungeon of our soul, and the dungeon burst with light. God turned on the light. So light can be rejected. But by contrast, light can be received. But finally, light can be reflected. Look back at our text. Back up to verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. This is a reference to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He came as a witness. The word witness there, martyron. It's the word we get martyr from. And bear witness is the, is the Greek word martyrio. It's both the same root that we call martyr. And when you and I think of martyr, we think of somebody that gives up their life for some great cause. And by the way, John the Baptist did. He had his head lopped off, right? But technically, the word martyr, martyron, means to bear witness to speak about something or someone, to give credence or credibility about another person. And that's what John the Baptist was doing, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, to bear witness, to shed light, to reflect the light that he had. Light can be reflected. John the Baptist wasn't the light. He was a good reflector, right? He came to bear witness about the light. And let me just suggest, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, it's more than just receiving Him. 
Our calling is to be martyrs, to bear witness, to reflect the light of Jesus Christ. You and I are little lights. I almost had the kids sing it this morning, but my voice has gone right. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. That's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus, speaking to the people in the crowd, he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, Jesus knew that he wasn't going to be around forever physically, right? He was light. And who are we? We're his little lights now. We're the ones that are supposed to carry out his will. We're the ones that are supposed to reflect the kind of things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus Christ did. We are to be those that bear witness. You know, the ancient Greeks esteemed um, <clears throat> oration. Is that a word? Oration? Never mind, you know what I'm talking about. They... Some of the greatest heroes of ancient Greek were those that were gifted speakers. I remember reading one time that uh, literally men would train to be these orders. You know, at, at Colosseums, it wasn't just for sports. People would flock to hear these, uh, these, these guys that had these wonderful, majestic voices. And I guess sometimes men would actually train by putting pebbles in their mouth. Well, gosh, it's sort of hard. And they figured, you know, if they could really pronounce those words with a bunch of rocks in their mouth and take the rocks out. You know, it's like putting weights on your... You know what I'm saying. It was a big deal. But the ancient Greeks had a formula that if you really want to be a great speaker, somebody who could really testify, somebody who really bear witness, they had, they had three qualities that they emphasized. First of all was logos. That's the Greek word for word. It's the word that's found in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word logos. Logos meant, it encapsulated the message that you're trying to get across. You've got to have something worth saying, right? Something worth testifying about. And so the Greeks said you've got to have a good logos, a good word to speak. Secondly, the word ethos. We get the word ethical from it. What does that mean? Well, it means a good life, a holy, virtuous life. Because even if you have a good word to speak, if your life is in shambles, then people think hypocrite. They won't listen to you. Despite your great word, your great logos, if your life doesn't match up to something that's admirable, they won't listen. Ethical, ethos. Logos, ethos, and the last one, Pathos. We get the word sympathy, sympathy, empathy. What is that all about? That's all about sensitivity toward others. You can have a good word, you can have an ethical life, but if you are cold and uncaring and distant, you're not going to connect. Now, you take any one of those things away and you remove your credibility, right? You might have empathy or sympathy. 
and you might have a good life, but if you've got a crummy message, who's going to want to hear it? Or you might have empathy, sympathy, you might have a good word, but if you're an unethical person, people won't hear. So you think about that because I think, when I think about this um, being a testimony of Jesus, you and I have a good word. We have the gospel, greatest message it's ever been. But we also need to back that message up with an ethical life, an admiral life, and a sensitivity that connects with other people, showing active kindness, active concern. Ladies, anytime you bring a meal to somebody that's sick, some neighbor that's unchurched, you're being a little light. Fellas, anytime you're at work and you're talking to somebody and you show actual concern for that person, how's your family doing? How's your kid doing? Well, my kid's not doing too good. And you say, you know, I'm going to pray for you. Anytime you show what the world would think as being a little bit unusual concern, compassion, extraordinary kindness, you're being a light. You're being a spokesman. You are reflecting your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Your life and my life are prisms through whom the manifold glory of God is shared with the world. Think about that. So, how are you responding to the light? Have you rejected the light? Have you kept Jesus at arm's length for right now? Well, I can wait. Be very careful. None of us knows how long we have. Don't continue to reject the light. Well, I'm willing to accept Jesus as a great man, great religious leader and all that, but this thing about him being God and Lord, Jesus said, if you do not believe that I'm the one to claim to be, you'll die in your sins. Don't reject him. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? We're going to close this service in a minute here, and there's going to be some folks up here that would like to pray with you, and if you've never received Jesus Christ, if you've never taken him as your Lord to whom you will submit, and receive the free gift of salvation, you can do that this morning. I think most of us in this room have done that. Are you reflecting the light of Jesus Christ? Are you consciously getting up every day, going to work or whatever you do every day, and thinking, I want to be a light today. Lord, put my spiritual antennas up, and make me aware of opportunities to say or to do something where I can be a light. Most of you heard of um, <clears throat> Robert Louis Stevenson. He's the guy that wrote Treasure Island. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, a very famous writer back in England. Well, one night during his boyhood, his nanny couldn't get him to bed. He kept staring out the window. And young Robert just kept staring out the window and just oblivious to his nanny talking to him. And finally she said, Robert, what in the world are you looking out, out there? And she went over and she pulled back the curtain. And she realized this little kid was watching the lamplighter making his way down the street, reaching up with his pole and lighting the street lights. And young Robert Louis Stevenson saw something a little bit more. He said, look, 
That man is punching holes in the darkness. I love that. My charge to you and, and me this week, let, let's go on and punch some holes in the darkness, okay? Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the light. Oh, God, may we grow in how we reflect you. May our lives continue to make changes that people notice. Good changes, Lord, so that we would be like the writer of Proverbs that says that the light of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter until the full light of day. But the way of the wickedness is like deep darkness. They don't even know what makes them stumble. Help us to shine ever brighter, Lord. Let us be sensitive to opportunities to show concern, sympathy, empathy for other people, to meet their needs in various ways, to be your small light in this world, reflecting your love and your compassion. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.